Welcome to She's on a Mission, the podcast. On our show, we talk about our entrepreneurial journey and how we built our current business, Renata Beauty. We also interview kick-ass powerhouse women who are on their own missions and highlight the ins and outs and the highs and lows of entrepreneurship. If you're on a mission, this podcast is for you. Hosted by Monica Abramov and Stacey Boguslavskaya. So today on the podcast, we have Erica Gelman, who is an internationally published Toronto-based designer. She currently runs Erica Gelman Design Inc., which is a multifaceted, full-service boutique firm specializing in high-end residential design. Erica leads her talented team in everything from custom decor to new home builds. So we're super happy to have Erica on the podcast today, and we hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to She's on a Mission, the podcast. We are your hosts, Monica and Stacy. And today's special guest is Erica Gelman of uh, Erica Gelman Designs. We're super excited to have you on. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so um, we're going to jump right into it. Why don't you first tell us about yourself and your background and how you got into interior design? So... Um, I am the principal designer of Erica Gelman Design. I I, I kind of hate that word principal designer though because I do have a really um, intensive staff who is super involved. And although I oversee everything, um, I am more of the kind of overseer creative director of Erica Gelman Design. Um, and as we grow, I think that's going to be kind of the continuous title. Um, I have been in business since 2008. Um, and I've been in the industry for, I don't want to date myself, but um, like a really long time, like 2000 and three, I think. Um, so 17 years. Oh my God. I can't believe I said that out loud. Um, yeah. 17 years I've been in the industry. Um, how did I get into design? I was actually in school for, I was in university. I was in school for communications, um, which at that time I thought was really kind of the most creative avenue that I could take. Um, in university, because they don't, they don't offer well. They, at that time, they didn't really offer interior design. Um, you'd have to be at like a college or um, something more like a, a skilled set schooling. Um, so I did a, my first year at York, and I knew that it was just not the place for me. Um, I knew that I wanted something that was going to fulfill me on a deeper level, something that was going to be creative. And I've always loved interior design, but because and I'm going to reveal a little secret, I can't draw. Um, I never thought that it was, I was ever going to be able to work in the industry because, um, I just, I thought that that was a skill that you needed to have and I did not have that. Um, so funny enough, um, my, after my first year of schooling, I was, um, at a decor center. My brother had just purchased a house and I was at the, you know, builder's decor center and, um, I'm speaking to the interior designer there and I was like, oh, like, how did you get started? I was asking her so many interesting questions and um, I said, oh, I would love to do this, but I actually can't draw. And she's like, neither can I. I'm like, well, how do you know, like, how do you do stuff? And she's like, everything is computer-based. And we're talking about, like now everything is computer-based. It's kind of, it's the norm. But back then, um, again, 
this is probably like 19 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, it Nothing was, like, computer-based wasn't so mainstream. And it's funny because I did have some, like, freehand, like, rendering classes when I was in school. But um, so I kind of had this conversation with her. I went home, and on my doorstep was an advertisement for the Academy of Design. So, and I'm a big signs person. So I came home and I was like, oh my God, like this is, this is a sign. I have to go, I have to speak to somebody. I have to enroll in um, something that would, like I said, like fulfill me on a deeper level than just being in school. So after school, I actually, um, after graduating the Academy of Design, um, I did everything. So I wanted to really see where my niche was going to be. Um, and at that time, um, again, we're going back a lot of years, uh, trading spaces, I don't know if you guys know this. So trading spaces was like the biggest thing on HGTV and, and everyone wanted to be a quote unquote designer, like design star. Um, and that's really the, like what everyone kind of knew. So really, if you kind of go back in history, like the eighties was where this whole very like sexy role of interior designer who only worked for like very high end clients. Those are the only people that could afford designers. Um, so it was this huge gap between between what we thought of an interior designer then versus like when HGTV kind of came out and made it super mainstream. So everyone wanted to be a designer. I wanted to know where I was gonna fit in the best. So I worked for a magazine doing um, staging shoots, doing articles about furniture and about design. Um, I also interviewed at furniture stores. Thank God that never worked out. Um, I worked for a renovation company. I worked for a decorator. And then I finally ended up working for a company um, where I kind of like planted my feet for a little bit of time there. Um, doing more of the commercial end. So they've kind of had uh, residential and commercial parts of their business. And I um, ended up working in the commercial aspect. I hated it, <laughs> like really just truly hated it. The hours were insane, um, but it really kind of gave me a, an, an understanding of how a firm worked. And I decided to leave because the just the hours were way too much. The compensation was way too little. Um, so I knew that I needed to kind of branch out and just extend myself. This was 2008. So I don't know if you guys remember what happened in 2008, but the recession hit. Um, so what goes first? Luxury. And who wants an interior designer? People who have money because it's a luxury service. So it was probably not the best idea at that time, but I kind of branched out and was like, I'm going to do this. Um, I didn't get any business. Uh, so I ended up working for my parents just kind of in there, um, like just doing bookkeeping and stuff. And um, it paid the bills. But at that same time, I was able to start networking, start telling people that I wanted to do this, um, that I was doing this. I I knew what I was doing, I thought, you know, you really don't know what you're doing when you're like fresh out of school. But, um, you know, I thought I did and I was willing to do anything and everything, just give me an opportunity to create. So that's kind of how it all really began. Um, and then slowly I started developing a client base and the word started spreading and people would ask me to start doing a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then I finally had to quit working for my parents so I can fully concentrate on this business, um, doing it for myself and really kind of giving my clients really good customer service because that's the, probably the most important in, a, in our luxury business service base. 
So going back to kind of the beginning, because a lot of, you know, our listeners want to know how to go about starting a business, right? So how did you go about starting your own firm, building out your team? What was kind of the first steps that you took um, to bring you kind of where you are now? So... At the beginning, I was working from my basement, um, just me and my laptop. And that's kind of really all I needed at that time. Because again, you know, when you first start a business, I want everyone to know that there's no such thing as an overnight success. Um, Overnight success, I think, takes about 10 years. So like this like overnight transition is really a decade of work. So I was, it was just me um, doing absolutely everything. Um, from sourcing to presenting to pricing to purchasing, like literally every single thing, doing all the AutoCAD drawings, I did it all. Um, I slept very little and I stressed a lot and I was making no money. So that's kind of the roots of starting your own business. Um, However, eventually what happened was I started to grow. Um, So my very small projects, which at the very beginning, again, as a creative person, you want to take on anything that comes your way, a color consultation. Um, People would ask me to come with them to select a fabric for a chair. Like they'd come with, can you come with me to the store? I found this really cute chair and I just don't know which fabric, like the darker gray or the lighter gray, like help me choose. So, you know, which doesn't really take up a lot of time. But then again, as I, started growing, um, my projects became a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. So, um, at my very first kind of employee, um, I tried to hire interns, but when you're like so small, nobody really wants to intern for you because they're really not like gaining that much. Um, there's no like really big personal gain, but I couldn't afford anybody. So, um, My first employee, I kind of just gave them the stuff to do that I didn't necessarily have the time for. So AutoCAD, which was a huge time suck for me, um, I let them do that stuff. And so I let them do the drawings. Um, And I like, although I was really good at it, but it took me a really long time. Like you're either just super fast. It's just one of those skills that you can either do really fast or um, somebody who's a perfectionist will sit there for hours and hours. And I knew that that I needed someone to do the stuff that was like sucking all the time out of me and I wanted to concentrate on the more creative aspect. Um, So then I I brought on like a part-timer and then as I started getting real clients, and I say real because um, to be honest, a lot of the times when you're starting out, you're getting clients who aren't paying you. Um, So when people actually started to pay me for this, um, I realized that it it was not going to be the best place to be in my basement having an employee. So I found an office space. At the same time, I was pregnant with my daughter. So everything kind of happens at once. Um, And I said, okay, if I'm going to have staff to take on these roles that I not necessarily have the time to do, um, I need to have people fulfill roles for me uh, that are going to allow me to, like I said, stay in the creative role, but move along projects more efficiently. So that's kind of how it started, um, small and very, very, very steady. And what happens is as as an owner, a small business owner, you have to also understand that um, when you start bringing people on, they're getting paid, but you aren't necessarily getting paid. <laughs> so true. So I think that that's probably one of the things that people don't realize is, um, you know, if you bring on staff, like that's now your responsibility and you come last. 
So, and then I, now I had rent to pay, which was like, which was number one priority. You know, my staff at that time, cause we were little, I'd be like, oh, I'm just waiting for this check to come in. Like, can I pay you on Monday? And, um, but my rent is my rent. So yeah, once bills start piling up and developing, you again, don't start making money. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this like evolutionary experience of like, at what point do you become this, um, now business owner, creative business owner, um, who is now paying all the bills and paying yourself for doing the creative work and running this business and kind of still keeping everybody under this umbrella of um, like all under one mission. Yeah, I think that leads really well into the next question. Okay. (laughs) So seeing as you don't have a business partner, looking back, do you wish you could have shared some of the responsibility with someone else or are you happy being a solo owner? At the beginning, I, I could, like there was no business partner even on my mind because it was just, like I said, me um, doing whatever came my way. So like I said, I would take on any job. If somebody were to say, have you ever done this? My automatic answer was always yes. Like I am an opportunist. <laughs> so I'm going to take every opportunity that comes my way. So, you know, have you ever designed a bathroom? Sure. Like, you know, then like I go on Google, I'm like how to design a bathroom. <laughs> yes, then figure it out later. <laughs> Absolutely. Like that was 100. I'm like, I will do this. I will 100% figure this out. And, you know, I kind of did. Um, and I was definitely like learning on the job, but, um, there was no opportunity for a business partner because there was nothing to share. Um, However, that being said, as I became a corporation, I would have loved to, at this point, have somebody to definitely share the responsibility with because I am still the... CEO, um, I'm, but I'm also still working as a designer in the business. So I would have loved to definitely have split that if I would have started my business at this point, but it's just not, that wouldn't have been realistic 12 years ago when it was just about me being a creative person wanting to create and wanting to express that creativity through clients. Right. So how do you go about getting new clients, right? Everyone's always, um, kind of, I guess, that's the biggest challenge, right? Because when you're in a service-based business, you know, you can't, I mean, you, I guess you can go the traditional route and do like Facebook ads and Instagram ads, but you are geographically focused, right? So how, how do you go about getting those new projects and clients? I actually don't want to be geographically focused, <laughs> um, but yeah, so at the beginning, like I said, it was just complete word of mouth. Like my first ever paying client was um, a family friend of mine's accountant. Um, and somehow they just started having a, they were just having a conversation about that he owned this house at the beaches that was like really was in need of a renovation, but he, that wasn't his primary residence. And she said, well, I know this girl and she just graduated. And um, I'm sure she'd love to help you out. You know, so it kind of became like that. And then slowly people started, um, telling one another about somebody who helped them, which so happened to be me. And I have to say at the very beginning, I was almost embarrassed to tell people, like I was if, I was embarrassed to advertise that I was a designer, which was crazy because I was like, oh, I don't want them to think that I'm trying to shove my business down their throat. Um, I'm very different now. I'm like, oh, oh, you just bought a new house? Oh, that's so funny, I'm a designer. Um, but I think now, it's always been word of mouth um, because I think that's really the best way to um, to really find your niche market as well. And then now social media has been a huge platform for me. And I think that's mainly because 
something like Instagram, for instance, where it's all visual, um, we're really able now to showcase the work that we have without just being um, listed on like our website. Because on a website, somebody actually has to go and find you. Whereas Instagram, it's a lot more accessible to a lot more people. And why I was saying like, I don't want to be geographically focused. Um, we do projects all the way from the Toronto beaches down to Muskoka, but my goal is definitely to move out of Toronto, not me personally move out, but my projects move out and do things um, kind of all over. So Erica, you work with people's most important spaces, their home. How do you manage the creative process with clients who are finicky? Do you like give up your full creative control or what do you, what do you do in those situations? It's an interesting one. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so the home is definitely your most personal space. And people who are bringing us into their home, if they're not willing to open up that space desk, they're probably the wrong client to be bringing a designer in because we we really end at the end of this project, we know where the money came from. We probably know how much you're making. Um, we know there's problems between the relationship or not the, between the relationship. Like we really, um, we very much become a part of your, your, your life. Um, so do we get cre complete creative control? We should. Um, that's kind of the best answer because there really is a difference between a full Erica Gelman design project versus one where a client has stepped in and made changes. And now a client is always going to want something that's going to be personal. And we really do try to make this a collaborative effort. And we try to get to know the clients very well, understand their needs, their wants in the space. The way that they're going to live in that space is, is a huge one for us because it's not just about making things pretty, but it's about making their life work. Like we really want to create this moment in their home that they want to be there. So we really do try to get to like the root of kind of how they envision living in their space. And then we, as a creative process, now then try to execute this in the best possible way to see your vision mixed in with our vision. Um, our vision's probably a little bit better, but your vision is the kind of overall effect. So um, our clients approve everything. And if they do, they do want to make changes, we're open to them. However, if we, if we really think that something's not going to work and our original ideas were better, we will present to them because that's why they're coming to us. We're the professionals. So when a client hires a designer, they can't necessarily do it themselves. Um, and we don't hire those people that will say, oh, you know, I could be a designer. Um, I've always wanted to be a designer, but I just need someone to do this. So then you probably need like a concierge to just go pick up your, um, you know, your tables and your chairs for you. That's Those are not our ideal clients. Those are not the people that we want to work with. And those are probably people who shouldn't be working with a professional either because you want to hire somebody who has the skill set and the knowledge to do it better. I'm going to spring one on you here. Okay. <laughs> um, so speaking of clients and whatnot, um, have you ever had to fire a client? Yes. <laughs> um, yes, I have. And it's, you know what, at the end of the day, and when a project has flaws, 
I look back at the end and I always reflect to see where it went wrong and how can we avoid making this mistake? And I say this to my, my team as well. Like, I don't care if you've made a mistake, own up to it, know what the mistake is, and then let's never do it again. Let's move past it. Um, so when a project is either whatever stage is at, um, then there's something that goes wrong, like me having to fire a client. I have to look back and I have to reflect and say like, what, what was wrong? And a lot of the times it's, it's, there's a miscommunication. And what happens with that miscommunication is that the expectations are not set properly. So either the conversation isn't in depth enough as to like, I can ask my client, what are you looking for? What, what are you expecting from us? And sometimes when they go rogue and, um, there's been times where, you know, everything seems like you're dating, right? So at the beginning, everyone's on their best behavior and, um, oh my God, I love to cook and I, I love cleaning and I just, you know, I want to like stay at home and not do anything. And then, you know, you, you end up in the relationship and this is like a powerhouse that's, uh, that's, you know, tearing up the world, but, um, it's kind of, it's very much this, that same situation. So, there's been times where we just did not align either on like the business sense or on the creative part. And there has been times where I had to fire a client. I also had to fire a client because they just mistreated my staff horribly. Um, and we don't stand for that either. We are, when we hire, when we are hired by clients, it's a relationship. It's probably, we're probably looking at a year because we do large scale projects. So we're together for a long time. Why do we need to put ourselves in a situation where we're gonna, we're gonna be unhappy, they're gonna be unhappy, there's going to be tension and negative energy. And I always say, and I am a firm believer in this, if there is negative energy in the project at the beginning, it will reflect as an end result always without fail things will go wrong like a million things will go wrong that have never gone wrong before yeah. but somehow the truck that was carrying all the furniture is going to break down in the middle of the road and they're going to get into a car accident and all of our furniture is going to get smashed and oh the driver's going to be okay nobody's dying we're all good but like everything is going to be ruined so um it's just it's just something that I'm a firm believer in. So if somebody comes in at this and they already are upset about something or they're already putting a negative spin on like little things and little things are gonna happen. Um, but those are just, it's not the situation that we wanna be putting ourselves in. Like we wanna make this an enjoyable experience for everyone all around, our team included and the clients, obviously. Right, yeah. So Erica, you recently had a baby. Mm -hmm. How do you manage family and running your own business? So I'm really tired all the time. <laughs> um, I have really, it takes, it takes a village. So like when they say that, it's not just a cliche, but it really does take a village. And um, I'm a firm believer in asking for help. And I don't think that makes me any weaker. I think that actually makes me stronger because I get to really excel in the things that um, I'm strongest at. So I, I do have an amazing nanny at home who takes care of my little guy. Um, and I have my mom who um, also <laughs> takes care of my little guy. Uh, if the, the moments that uh, my nanny's already done working and I'm still working. Um, I have a really great support system. My husband is so good with, with the baby. And then I have a team at home. So it's just all around, like it's, it's my village of people. And I definitely could not do this without them, but yeah, I, I'm tired and I still want to be involved in everything. So my day kind of like starts and stops with me 
working. So there's no like break time in the middle. It's not, you know, a couple years ago and I'd be like, I'm going to take a nap. Like it's like, you're like, I'm just going to like lie in bed and like hang out. No, like that, that does not happen. Um, and I still, like I said, like I want to be involved in everything, but I think that that just requires having assistance throughout. So I still can have my, like dip my toes in all aspects from family to like my relationship, which is still, um, it's still important and my business and my business relationship. So yeah, ask for help. <laughs> That's excellent advice. Um, so going back to, you know, business, mm -hmm. how do you manage? Cause you guys have, you know, potentially a lot of big pro projects going on at the same time. So how do you manage, how do you prioritize having like multiple large pro uh, projects going on at the same time? So recently we just added a new team member, um, but the way that my team is kind of built, so we have me who is the, um, like I said, the creative director, um, the principal designer on the project. And then I work very closely with a project manager. So every project that comes through the door, they get assigned an internal project manager. So it's not someone who stands on site all day. Um, I know that sometimes that word project manager has like a little bit of a gray area, but this is your internal project manager. So if you wanna call at eight o'clock in the morning and find out what the progress is on something, you probably shouldn't because we're that organized. So you, you will know the answer, but um, the project manager will be able to assist with that at all times. Then we also have someone who is our CAD technician and so they do up all the drawings. So again, I've really tried to, um, kind of going back to when I was doing everything by myself, I tried to alleviate kind of tasks from important roles and then give them to people who are going to do it just faster and it makes everyone work more efficiently. Recently, I added a project coordinator slash office coordinator. And so she handles all the buying, um, all the purchases, all the logistics. So there, people don't understand the amount of moving parts that happen or in the part of an execution process. Um, so she kind of handles all of that. But we do have multiple project managers that are assigned to each project, um, not just one. And again, I'm CC'd on every email and it's not unlikely that I'm going to reply before your project manager does just because um, I just, I'm super involved in these things but uh, that's kind of that's kind of the way that we run things so everyone has their own task and the only people that are really splitting the tasks are um, the CAD technician and um, our, our office coordinator. So obviously now that you know your business has really grown and as you said you're using social media more and more to kind of highlight uh, the work that you're doing and people are really taking notice what is some advice that you would give somebody who's wanting to you know start out their own uh, service-based business with you know clients and and where you have to deal with lots of clients especially the first piece of advice that I would give anyone who's starting any business but more so really a service-based business is know your worth and I think that that is such an issue that we have as creatives because there's no like manufacturer suggested retail price on your service. So when you're selling products, it's a little bit easier because there's like market research that you can do. And yes, granted, there's definitely 
market research that you can do to find out how many, how much other designers or photographers or um, wedding planners or whoever it is that you're doing, that you're servicing, whether if you're an interior designer or a photographer or like a wedding planner, um, anyone who is in a even like a luxury-based service business, you have to understand how much value you're bringing to the table. And I think for us as creatives, it's really difficult because you just want to create. You just want someone to see what you're capable of doing. And unfortunately, it becomes a like a double-headed sword because um, you want to be able to show somebody what you're doing and you know that you you have a skill set that maybe somebody else doesn't have, but you need a platform to be able to produce this. And usually people aren't willing to pay you for that. So it's really difficult to kind of get started in this. You either have to do it... Um, one or two projects that you aren't getting paid what you should be, but at least you're able to create some sort of portfolio and show people what you're you're made of. Um, what happens a lot with people who are just starting out is people like to think that you're, they're doing you a favor by hiring you. And as a result, what happens is you are either not charging enough, and I mean, that's probably, yes, you're not charging enough, um, you're being taken advantage of. And and it, it could be not on purpose, so I don't think people maliciously try to do this, but you are being taken advantage of because your time is not respected. And I think that's one of the hardest things that I had to learn is how to respect my own time, because if I don't do that, then my clients won't either. Um, so really putting a dollar value understanding what that dollar value is, making sure that everyone is is happy and on the same page. And uh, sometimes interior designers, um, especially, they, they're a, a per hour basis. So they kind of figure out how much their, their time is worth per hour. We work on flat fees because we do work on very large projects. And like I said, they usually are on average take about a year to do this. Um, so I'm not going to charge you for eight hours of me trying to find you the perfect garbage can, even though that's how long it can take. And on the flip side, I'm also not going to charge you for half an hour of my time of choosing paint colors throughout your whole house when, you know, we're just really quick at that. Like we know what's going to work with all the selections that we've already made. But, um, just if you're starting, you really need to figure out what your platform is, how you are going to be different, um, what is going to make you stand out as a creative. And at the same time, know that, yes, as much fun as it is to be able to show your craft and to be able to have those pretty pictures at the end, your time still has to have a value to it. And you can't just be giving that away for nothing and you know there's a like starving artist is a term for a reason because it's not just like a term it's really because usually you're you're starving until somebody recognizes that you should be fed I actually I love that I love the whole know your worth angle because I feel like as women especially when we first start out we're very almost apologetic mm -hmm. about our pricing, whether that's a service-based business or even for our products. Yeah. Like when we first started out, it, it's mainly for people that we know, I find. So, mm -hmm. you know, like family, friends and, and acquaintances would be like, oh, like how much are your products? And we'd be like, oh, like, you know, they're 150 when we first started out, like 150 USD. Um, but, you know, I can give you a discount code. And we were just always so apologetic about how much we were charging. But you're so right. You need to know your worth. You need to stand by it. Be confident in it. 
and don't don't apologize for it. And uh, when I was starting out, I mean, I have so many stories to tell, but when I was starting out, the I thought it was totally normal. Um, looking back, it was 100% not normal, but people would ask me to do stuff and I was almost embarrassed to tell them that there was a fee associated with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would I remember being asked by someone to come with them um, to a kitchen company and they were selecting kitchen cabinets and they wanted me to help them out. And not only did I help them out with like selecting their, their color, but also like the function of the kitchen. And I worked really hard with this kitchen company and I, I think I did like three or four visits with them and um, had numerous phone conversations that probably lasted couple, several hours at a time. And I was really like, I was embarrassed to tell them that there was going to be a fee. And I might have not, I might have not have known what that fee was, but they never asked me either. Like they never came to me and said like, how much do I owe you? It was almost like, oh yeah, like you're learning anyways. So, um, you know, you just kind of do it for free. And, and I, this was also, this was a friend of mine's cousin. So I think that they felt like, again, like they were doing me some kind of favor. But meanwhile, I was giving them really solid advice. And that advice had a value to it that I recognized, but either they didn't or they just thought that, you know, it's no big deal. But if somebody's asking you to, to assist them or to provide them with something, um, we should not be apologetic about it because if they don't want to pay for it, then unfortunately, they shouldn't be getting it. Yeah. Like it's yeah. Just, like in our experience, I think one of the big things we saw was it also can kind of set a precedent where people think that that's like how things are going to be moving forward. So like, for example, in the service industry, I know that if you discount your service, mm-hmm. you're also risking the fact that people are going to assume, well, that's what you're going to do all the time and not just like a situation based uh, discount or where you say to people like you're going places with them all the time and then you're not really like issuing them an invoice then they're just you know you set this kind of precedent and then when you change it up they kind of freak out like why why are you doing this differently now so i think that that's yeah, a huge it's one funny i have this visual oh sorry go on no 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 go ahead um i have this visual and you know people who know me know that i equate everything to a friends episode but i have this visual of that scene in friends where monica and phoebe started that catering business mm. and um they she, monica was so afraid to ask for payment and phoebe was like no monica like you need to go in there you need to get your payment you need to know your worth like we provided a service mm-hmm. like we need to get paid for that service and I again it goes back to just being like apologetic about it and we can't be apologetic about it you no. know we, we provide a service or product and you know you need to be compensated for that what, what, whatever it is or whatever it may be so funny story um i'll jump in like really quick there is um, a designer who also has a really big platform it's um her name is kimberly selden she um has a an amazing kind of like learning um, operation for other designers. It's called Business of Design. And I was I did one of her courses once and she said the most real thing I've ever heard. She said, a prostitute at the end of the night looks straight, like looks you straight in the eye and says, you owe me X amount of dollars, like whatever that dollar is. Yep. And she gets paid for it. She's performing a service, doesn't no yeah. no judgment, but she's performing a service and she's getting paid for that service. And you want to do your service for free? Yeah. And I just remember this was probably like over 10 years ago when I heard this, but it's literally resonated and stuck with me since then, thinking like, yeah, 
yeah, like I'm not a prostitute. Like I'm, I'm you know, but I, I want to get paid for my service. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before we wrap up here, we're going to ask you the question. And by the way, just because you guys can't see Erica, but she's currently flat ironing her, her hair just doing some with, with the Lunata iron. So, um, but yeah, to the, the question that we ask every woman that we have on our podcast, what is your mission? So I have two. Um, I strongly believe that as women, we can have it all. We just can't do it all alone. So you can be a mother, you can be a wife, you can be an entrepreneur. And by the way, I hate the word mompreneur. Mm-hmm. Like there's yep. no such thing as dadtrepreneur. <laughs> or a whatever. she boss or a she, CEO. Yeah, why isn't it just boss? Like why? Um, so yeah, I, I str- no, no, there's no more mompreneur. It's just I'm an entrepreneur. You can have it all and you can be good at everything. You just need to build your village. And your village usually will consist of everyone around you who has that same goal. Um, And that goal is success towards the end of that day. Um, And then the second mission, more so focused on like my business is we really, like I wanna wanna grow and I wanna expand. And my mission is to really kind of take this very small in my basement kind of idea that I had. Um, And it's not an idea that nobody else has. It's just, you know, I'm just doing it a little bit different. So how do I now take that and grow it and make this a really a well-oiled machine that I still have that creative control over, um, but just in a much larger platform? And when people say, you know, oh, you've changed, I always want to say thank you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, thank you. I, I, I want to change. I want to grow. And I want to be different every single day. And that's just an evolution of, I think, who I am. I love that. I love that, too. Yeah. Yeah. I love change. Whenever people say that and like they, it, you know, sometimes it comes off as a negative, but it's truly like a positive. I think so. Yeah. I don't want to be that same person that I was, you know, 12 years ago, like not billing people. And I do have to say that I, I know that we're like, we're done, but, um, I do have to say that I still hate asking people for money. And that's why I have, um, somebody who sends the invoices because now that is their designated role and she loves it. Like she's <laughs> so like, you oh, have the Phoebe. Yes. <laughs> Phoebe on your team. Yes, absolutely. I love that. Um, so Erica, if our listeners want to connect with you online or through social, where can they find you? Yeah, please connect with me. I'm like, I actually answer almost every single one of my DMs um, personally. So you can find me on Instagram at Erica, E-R-I-C-A underscore Gelman, G-E-L-M-A-N. That's probably the best way to connect. Uh, You can see all of our pretty stuff and we can chit chat and you can watch our videos. Like we have like a lot of behind the scenes um, office footage. So you can kind of see a little bit of, get a window into our, the crazy chaos of uh, the Erica Gelman design team. I love that. Thank you so much, Erica, for coming by and sharing your words of wisdom. Um, We loved having you on the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe and share with other women on a mission. We also welcome you to follow our brands on social media where we'll announce new episodes and other exclusive info. You can find us on Instagram at Renata Beauty and at Unplugged.Beauty. Until next time.